What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone. I just want to give you a quick heads up that my new book, The Business of Belonging, How to Make Community Your Competitive Advantage, is now available anywhere where you can buy books on Amazon and any bookstore. It is the complete collection of everything I've learned from the last 13 years and how to build community for your business and all of the frameworks and models that the CMX team has developed to teach businesses how to do this work. It's all in here. I really appreciate all your support. You can go and order it now. Today, we have an awesome interview with Austin Roby, who is the co-founder of MetaLabel and Ampled. Both are DAOs and co-ops working in community-owned businesses. And Austin's been working in the world of co-ops for a long time. And I invited him on the show after reading an article that he wrote for FWB that was all about what co-ops can teach DAOs and what DAOs can learn from co-ops, what are the pros and cons of co-ops and DAOs, the history of co-ops. And that's a lot of what we discuss here on the show today. He shares the background of co-ops and its roots in civil rights and agriculture. And he shares his work in going from co-ops and experiencing the challenge of fundraising for a co-op and making it financially sustainable, which is interesting because there's so many parallels between co-ops and his experience with what community managers deal with, with trying to get budget within Web 2.0 companies, within venture-backed companies, and the difficulty for community-centric companies to monetize and find a financial exit. So this conversation was amazing. It just opened up so many new ideas and questions, but also new understanding around what it really could look like for a business to be community-owned, community-led, and how it can become sustainable financially. So for those of you who are interested in co-ops, who are curious about DAOs and Web3, uh, just believe that businesses should continue to move in the direction of community ownership and being community-led, you're going to have a lot to think about after this one. All right, let's dive in. Austin, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be here. So yeah, we've been seeing each other around FWB and Seed Club. Have you been involved in both those communities for a while? I've been involved in Seed Club pretty early on as a member of the second cohort. So right now they're on the fourth cohort. That's right. Mm -hmm. So I, with a team representing Ampled, a platform I helped start, we were in Seed Club exploring a community token model. And that was like starting about a year ago today. So like February 21. And actually currently in the fourth cohort now with a new project called MetaLabel. Oh, you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh you're the legal one? Oh, no, no, no. MetaLabel is like a cultural collective. Oh, MetaLabel. Right. With uh, Yancey Strickler, the co-founder of Kickstarter, on the founding mm -hmm. team and Rob Keelan who started Etsy and Anna Bulbrook, who's from Toxic Airborne Event and Ted Music. So a really cool group of people in this fourth cohort. So I guess the joke is that I have this very hyphenated role and I show up and no one knows whether I'm showing up as an alumni or like a community member or like an active participant. So Or an advisor. <laughs> right, right. So I'm I'm a believer in the C Club community. I think it's such an interesting accelerator model, totally. thinking about ownership in interesting ways. So if there's time to prioritize within communities, 
Sea Club is filled with really thoughtful people, I guess, including yourself. It's in the Discord. So I've been Sea Club for about a year. Friends with Benefits a bit more recently as like an official mm. member and have contributed a bit like with their editorial side writing articles. Right. Which inspired this conversation, your article on co-ops and DAOs, which we're going to really dive into. But I'm curious, how has your experience been in FWB so far? I've been a member for probably six months, four to six months, something like mm-hmm. that. But like, it's so much more established. I feel like Seed Club is still so new that maybe that's why it's been like relatively easy for me to get plugged in. Mm-hmm. But FWB is like such a mature community in some ways already, and it's pretty large. What's your experience been? Yeah, it really is mature in a lot of ways. There's, I just continue to be impressed by how thoughtful the group has been about transparency, governance, all the interesting tools that they're building and, and programs and events that they have going on, like really fostering a sense of belonging, IRL events as well. So I really appreciate and respect the team there. And I, I really think that Friends with Benefits, I think, is doesn't get enough credit for the ways that they're operating. I think particularly if you look at their snapshot where people are voting on things and they show every single month like uh, budgets and actuals. And I think it's a really good use case for people to look at of how engaged a collective community like that can be. And if you go Mm -hmm. to events in the private Discord, there's a really high attendance of people Mm -hmm. there. So it's very engaged, cool people. And so, yeah, I do think that it's often overlooked and I I appreciate what they're doing. Mm. Yeah, as you're talking, I think what I'm realizing with FWB is that it is so advanced for a DAO, for the state of DAOs overall, like they're pretty much at the forefront. And there are so many things going on. There's like lots of different projects with budgets and votes and different teams and squads, which like for someone who's new can also be very overwhelming because like, I joined and I'm like, wow, I have no idea where to even plug in. There's so many different lines and channels and teams and conversations to be a part of and groups. So it's almost like maybe it is if for a DAO that actually does become more mature and starts building out a lot of the systems and processes that we talk about, it's hard to be a passive community member like you would in other like interest-based community groups where you're just talking about a topic or something of interest. Like you join FWB and you get the weekly newsletter about everything that's happened. And it's just like, it's like you're working at a company pretty much, mm-hmm. right? Like when you join mm-hmm. a DAO as like an owner and a member, you're basically joining as like a contractor or an employee in a way for a company. And like you really have to immerse yourself in it or else it's easy to just kind of get lost. Right. Yeah. You could be a kind of passive member. Or what I think is interesting is the pathways that people could become more engaged or active if they want to. And yeah, it definitely seems like a a group, or maybe this is just like an emerging trend. It just kind of defies easy categorization for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. The articles that I've seen written about them never really seem to get it right. Mm-hmm. I think it's like people may pejoratively pigeonhole it as like a a digital Soho house, but you can mm-hmm. easily just as look at it like a like an artist cooperative just as much. Or like this really novel experiment in collective governance. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's definitely interesting to be 
a part of it. And I, I think that it's uh, very cool and like seeing it grow and, and continue to mature. Totally. All right. Well, we're going to come back to FWB, I'm sure, as we get into some of these topics around DAOs. And I like to try to define all these things for everyone who's listening in case they're new. So FWB is Friends with Benefits. It's one of, it's probably the largest or most like matured DAO that's out there. A DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. So it's a organization that's owned by the community and governed by the community, at least in theory. We're going to talk a lot about DAOs on this. And Seed Club is an accelerator for DAOs. I think the first of its kind and something that Austin and I have both been involved in. I've been advising a bit and Austin's now a batch member number two. And they're up to their their fourth batch now. So really cool community. Highly recommend you explore both if you're interested in DAOs. But Austin, why don't we start with like your background a little bit more? Because you have a really rich history of experimenting with co-ops before this whole concept of DAOs was even around. Now you're getting more and more immersed in DAOs. And one of the inspirations for this conversation was the article you wrote for FWB about what DAOs and co-ops can learn from each other and kind of the pros and cons of each. So we're going to dive into that here. But why don't we start with your background and how you came to be involved in this space? Yeah, I think uh, there are many different entrance points to land and kind of like this community focused web three subculture that's very interested in collective ownership and like emergent forms of people and, and kind of like new forms of human organization. For me, I was a, a long time crypto skeptic. That person still lives inside of me, <laughs> to be honest. Same Z's. <laughs> and I guess what started this path was first co-founding a, a project called Ampled which is a Patreon-like platform for musicians that was organized and formed as a cooperative. So that means a platform that's collectively owned by its users and workers with one member, one vote governance. So this idea is something that I first learned about through kind of academia, which is in New School and University of Colorado Boulder, there were people like Trevor Schulz and Nathan Schneider, which were writing about this idea called platform cooperativism, which is like such a mouthful, like, you know, that it's like, <laughs> it has some academic influence. And it is just a very compelling idea, I think, as a response to gig economy work, I think, like, the precarious kind of creator economy work, where so much of our lives is in economy is transitioned to these platforms that we don't own. And seek to serve extractive venture capital investors. So the core idea is just taking what is like an older, more brick and mortar, at least in perception idea, like a cooperative, and applying that to a tech platform. So an example would be like Uber owned by drivers, right. or Airbnb owned by hosts, or Instacart run collectively by the personal shoppers or delivery cyclists. And yeah, just found this idea really interesting. And me and some people, Colin Lewis, Ryan Deshawn, we initially started building Ampled and we're thinking about ways to approach it a bit differently. Neither of us had really worked at a traditional startup before. So we had, I think, some advantage of like less to unlearn and mm -hmm. just kind of had a critical lens from the start, you know, asking like, why are companies for sale? before they start, 
or like why why is this kind of sequential round of rounds of funding seed a b c d towards very rigid ideas of like an exit which is either like selling to another company or going public that these seemed like very limited paths for something that we did not feel like fit that and we were interested in like creating a structure that was inherently trustworthy not just like trust us like as people and so it landed on this idea of ownership so we were thinking about how do we share ownership and after kind of like exploring many different mechanisms and ways to think about this which is surprisingly difficult to do we just landed on the idea of it being a, a cooperative with zero investor ownership which introduced a lot of other questions of like how to even make it work how to finance it how to build it and i think like so much of that ended up being like a community first approach of us kind of like raising our flag and being like very honest with some of the challenges and then people coming and saying i want to help build this with you so mm-hmm. it also like instilled a lot of trust within the team as well there wasn't this sense as there might be at other kind of like startups while they're in the early stages of formation of who's getting more equity like who's going to get a bigger payout like who's getting paid what it really just was kind of like this definancialized labor of love from the beginning and i think that for everyone involved it just felt right to us you still have to figure out who's getting compensated for what though right and like who gets how much ownership and what that ownership means like there's still questions around that it's just different incentive structures and different contexts than a venture back company right yeah i think a cooperative model is flexible but it's also very simple like one of the main key defining characteristics of a cooperative is one member one vote so we did have to like create bylaws from scratch and really like we went through this learning process together and yeah i think in the end it was just like it was about making sure that it was simple and egalitarian and that's just like what felt right and no one in the end was doing it for financial gain so we really treated it more like a passion project that we just really wanted to see in the world and wanted to see it exist right is that true of most co-ops or are other co-ops more financially driven than that? Oh, I think, no, there's, yeah, the idea of a cooperative is not mutually exclusive with kind of like uh, larger or successful businesses. We were just realistic about the challenges of building a two-sided marketplace tech platform while being completely excluded from venture capital. Mm-hmm. That's a severe handicap in our instance and something that would like to see solved. And one reason why I'm attracted to the idea of, of DAOs, I think it's a better way to potentially resource collective organizations like this than like traditional meat space legal ownership, which is, is very limiting sometimes. Right. And to find that one, meat space is one of my favorite <laughs> terms in crypto. Meat space is just IRL, the real world, not the metaverse. Right. And so is it, are co-ops not able to fundraise from VCs? Well, there are, are many different flavors that you can have a cooperative with an investor class of shares. At Ample, we just we chose not to do that in favor of simplicity. We really wanted to say without any kind of asterisk that this platform is owned by the artists and workers together. Okay. And yeah, so I think there are like emerging creative ways of bringing in investment, but at the same time, realistically, investing in a 
a cooperative, it's going to be harder to extract more value or get venture level returns for an investor. So an investor in, say, like an arts cooperative would have to be considering other bottom lines besides like a fiduciary return. So that's obviously a challenge that severely limits kind of like the pool of people that would consider pulling money in. Why is that? Why can't a co-op be like acquired or IPO or something? Well, um, well, that would just completely change the nature of ownership. I think like at a core level, mm. it's like the reason why you start a cooperative is different from starting a traditional company where it's, its intention is to serve uh, like people's basic needs, like is to serve like a utility and have like an ongoing use case value rather than like a transactional value. So it's less about creating value for ownership and selling it and more of maintaining a kind of like shared utilitarian good. I think often it's like if the market isn't going to build it for us, then we'll build it for ourselves is kind of like the pattern that a lot of cooperatives follow. So they're kind of things that like may not have the same market incentives or there's no reason for someone to build it because it's not going to be a big company. A co-op can build it because they're not actually trying to have some big sort of financial outcome. It's really just like we want this thing to exist and this is a system that could potentially allow us to have it exist sustainably. Yeah, right. So like, as an example, in the 1940s, a lot of rural America was gained electrical power through electricity co-ops. And these were areas that like traditional, larger energy companies didn't think were profitable enough to serve. So it's an example of people just coming together and building something for themselves when other people won't build it for them. So it's like a, it's a model that kind of is born out of necessity and uh, like survival and self-sufficiency often. Yeah, you, you talk a little bit about the history of co-ops in your article and in your interview on Seed Club as well. And it's back, it has roots in civil rights as well, right? Well, there's a lot of people associate co-ops with like a hippie grocery store. Often you think of businesses that are smaller in scale, people sitting Indian style in a circle, making slow decisions. But there's this really interesting book by Jessica Gordon Nifarb, a professor at John Jay College, which kind of like connects this like deeper American history through African-American roots of where kind of like a lot of cooperative principles actually emerged and kind of like solidarity networks and economic coordination. And these are, these are ideas that have existed throughout history and every corner of the world. So it's, it feels like an important side note, just because this is like a kind of like a shared idea space that DAOs have emerged from, or at least share a lot of considerations with. So part of the the purpose of that article is just like connect the dots so that there's like a historical context in, in the work that DAOs are doing, like economically coordinating with each other creating solidarity networks to serve and benefit each other's needs. And it's just examples of, of that in history, which like go way before any kind of like tech thinking of solutions. So starting to go into, into this, into DAOs a little bit, there's, and actually before that, there are lots of examples of really big co-ops as well, right? Like, so there aren't, it isn't just a local grocery store, like we got Rainbow Grocery here in the Bay Area. It's like one of the ones I think of, but REI is a big example of a large, well-known co-op that's like a really big 
multi-billion dollar company, right? Are there other co-ops? Right. Yeah, there's Mondragon. Like Mondragon is like a kind of example that a lot of people point to in Spain, like a billion dollar large cooperative. Some of the examples that I think are interesting are examples of this done in a platform context. Stocksy, based in British Columbia, they are a cooperative platform of stock photographers that own collectively own a stock photography platform. And they like are well-established, running, profitable company. There's also Savvy Cooperative, which is a, like a healthcare data cooperative owned by patients. That's a very fascinating model to me. And yeah, I mean, I also I live in in Brooklyn, and there's Park Slope Food Co-op here, which I believe has over thirty thousand co-owners, and like you know, was particularly resilient during COVID. When I think there are, there are a lot of challenges for grocery stores. So yeah, some, there's at least enough data to point to businesses that are cooperatively owned being more resilient during downturns in the medium and long term, being more profitable and being able to pay employees better. It's a fair question of like, why aren't there more of these companies? But I, I think we're still in this kind of post-Cold War haze where these models aren't even taught in business or law schools. Mm, it's true. And I think that there's kind of like this Cold War hesitancy still of like promoting ideas that even resemble like an alternative to traditional capitalism. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, even at the beginning of starting Ampled, I went to the Brooklyn Public Library to the, the business section and wanted to check out all the books that I could on cooperatives. And there was nothing. I mean, there were there were two books in the old, old, not very helpful books in kind of like the archives in the basement. And it just goes to show that like the, the challenge, they're harder to fund for sure. But once they're going are incredibly resilient, strong businesses that serve great needs. And so, yeah, I think a lot of the challenges are just not having more examples or it might just be like a lack of education. Like no MBA is coming out right now learning about cooperative models as like a, an actual kind of like choice or like an option for creating a, an organization. Something tells me that's going to change soon. <laughs> Interesting. So like, so starting to look into DAOs and, and where the crossovers there, if one of the core principles of a co-op is that it's not driven by some big financial outcome, it's not driven by an acquisition, it's not driven by like the value of shares necessarily. People who are in it are in it to create this shared utility. And if you're working for it, you're getting at least a base base income, you're getting a salary. How does that jive with the world of DAOs, which in some ways model similar concepts to a co-op, but have a huge amount of financial incentive tied to it, whether or not you want it to, right? Like one thing I've talked about recently is FWB is an example for me. Like I joined it, to learn to be a part of a DAO to like kind of figure out how this stuff works, but it costs you know seventy five tokens to join. That costs eight grand to buy those tokens, and that token has halved in value since I joined. So whether or not I joined for financial reasons, like in order to participate, I had to take that risk, and that risk ended up costing four to five grand, right? So now connecting co-ops to DAOs, co-ops fundamentally have this belief that it's not about 
some sort of financial outcome, like by its structure, it cannot have an acquisition or an IPO because it would change the entire model. And so people who are in it are in it to create the shared utility. And the financial outcomes for people are just like, you get paid by the co-op if you work for it, but there's no like shareholder value really, right? Yeah, I would say mostly that categorization is true. There may be some minor other kind of like contrary examples, but yeah, I would agree with that. Okay. So my question is for DAOs, which at least in narrative are embodying a lot of the same values and goals of co-ops. How does that align or misalign with DAOs also being so financially driven by ownership of tokens, value of tokens? FWB is an example for me where like, I joined FWB with no intention of it being a financial investment. I just wanted to learn, be a part of the community, participate, but it still cost eight grand at that time to buy 75 tokens and that token price is halved. So now I'm down four to five K on that investment, whether or not I looked at it as an investment. So like for me, it's I'm trying to figure out if it's possible to kind of separate those two when looking at DAOs or, yeah, I don't know, I guess, what's your take on that financial element of DAOs? Does it impact its ability to function in the same kind of way as a co-op? Yeah, I think that the FWB model is probably unique to FWB and isn't necessarily how all DAOs would work that have kind of like a pricey buy-in. Mm-hmm. Like one of the DAOs are such an emergent form that don't have a clear definition now. So it's, I guess it's easier just to kind of gauge off of patterns that we've seen in the space so far. I think because cooperatives are one member, one vote, it uh, avoids some of the, the issues of whales having outsized governance power or people purchasing power that are outside of the organization. Mm-hmm. And I think that but when it comes to financial speculation, my sense is that there probably is kind of a Goldilocks happy medium where there is a way to allow people that support an organization to do that, to like buy in, to kind of like support a mission that a particular DAO has. And what I think is interesting about like token-based models or token-based ownership is that it feels like a really interesting way to bootstrap some of these networks. When you can invent your own community currency that can serve as an incentive tool for coordination and for contribution, like a wide network of people, that's a really unique tool that can really help bootstrap some of these networks. And that's like one of the huge challenges of of co-ops is like, how do you bootstrap it? How do you fund it? It's really tough. The idea of a a token serving as like a proxy for ownership or governance, I think has a lot of potential. Mm -hmm. It may not be perfect in the way that we've seen, but that's kind of like the argument in the article that I wrote is like, there are elements from both that I think combine between co-ops and DAOs that can build organizations that do have more egalitarian type voting and kind of like empower governance and financial upside for people contributing, but also like a way to resource these organizations and help them build the things they need to build and and create impact. Mm -hmm. This is where it gets really interesting for me. Because yeah, I know you've talked about the difficulty of funding co-ops and you also talk about how it's really hard to get grants, right? Because co-ops are technically have to be for profit. Is that right? 
Yeah, I'd say by and large, most every cooperative is like inherently a for-profit organization. So that ends up being a pretty big disqualifier from most grants that right. typically give to nonprofits. Why does it have to be a for-profit? Uh, don't ask me. <laughs> I don't know. I think there are some progressive grant makers that will consider cooperatives, but it's very, very rare. I mean, why do co-ops have to be for-profit? Oh, well... Generally, it's profit sharing. So like any surplus is distributed back to mm. members in the form of, of dividends. It feels like a it's a way to actually run a profitable business and share in the upside. Uh, just as like if you're a member of REI, the mm. benefits that you get from being a member like go into your account like in the form of dividends. Totally. Got it. That makes sense. So that's why it can't really be set up as a nonprofit and that's why it's hard to get grants. So yeah, co-ops are in this like weird space where you can't get like the grants that would typically go to more community-led things that are more like nonprofits, but because of the structure as well, you can't really raise VC funding. Investors are a very small pool that would be interested in investing in a co-op in the first place. And so funding is really hard. And part of the reason this gets really interesting for me is I've worked now in community management for... 15 years now, 15 years of working in community management, basically building community for companies, building companies that are community-led. And it's funny just to see like this same narrative. Like People who do this work of community building almost across the board are doing it for some sort of egalitarian, like wanting to create value for people, help people help each other, very human-centric work. But it's trying to like fit into this mold of traditional capitalism where like, well, what's the ROI? What's the return? Mm -hmm. And so both community managers for companies that are like trying to get budget and buy-in have a hard time communicating like the value of the work they're doing. And community entrepreneurs or creators who are like building community independently as a business, also really hard to build up as a business. It's hard to fund. It's hard to monetize a community in the same way that you can monetize content or podcasts or other things. So it's interesting just to see the parallels between co-ops and like every form of community-led business that I've seen. Right. This is why ownership is important. Like ownership drives interest and interest of an investor who owns a startup is very different from a community that's using a product or service, then ownership is basically what drives incentives, which drives behaviors. So I could see community managers at kind of VC-backed startups having this kind of like dissonance of like wanting to empower and involve community members or create a sense of ownership or sense of belonging. Mm, but yeah, the actual like incentives and the responsibilities and the rewards and all the upsides of ownership don't exist. Yeah. You just articulated something that's been bubbling in my head for a while. <laughs> it's like the difference between a sense of ownership and actual ownership. And like that dissonance kind of sums up my career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, but this feels like, I mean, at least what I've seen in the DAO space is encouraging. And I like, mm. if you've been in the same space as I've been and you've probably seen it, just how much impact, like giving real upside, real governance power to people that are providing value. Mm -hmm. It's real value that any member of a community is providing to that organization. Mm -hmm. So it would make sense to capture that and sharing it together. And yeah. it feels just like a natural way to build 
companies that will end up winning in the end by having a broad base of empowered owners. So let's talk more about DAOs. Where are DAOs bringing or solving for some of the problems that co-ops have struggled with? Funding is one. Maybe we could talk about that. Are there other elements of co-ops that DAOs are solving for? I think it's where it comes down to like funding and scale. So okay. if you go to the platform cooperativism conferences at New School University, you'll find a lot of professors talking about uh, theory and you'll find social entrepreneurs and cooperative entrepreneurs that just cannot get past this funding problem. So Mm -hmm. it feels like this hierarchy of needs that like you just, you can't even begin to really think about thoughtfully engaging a community or scaling it until you just are able to breathe, have like oxygen for this organization. Like, so the, for like a confluence of reasons, there's, it's very interesting to me that like DAOs largely have very little financial constraints, sometimes even none to a degree. And so, yeah, the idea of like a token that could serve as this tool to drive resources and help create like scale real ownership, that is something that like I haven't seen a cooperative be able to easily do. And the nature of a token as like a proxy for ownership is so fluid as well. I mean, there's definitely a lot of weird dynamics that can be created with this, but I feel optimistic in that these these uh, models of token ownership should be explored much more. So we can basically take kind of like the ideas of cooperatives or tech-based cooperatives and actually allow them room to grow, like give them tools so that a network yeah. can bootstrap itself. What I would like to see is less reliance on venture capital that's my my personal gripe with the space, the DAO space right now is this is an entirely new like set of law of physics for organizations. So it doesn't make sense to treat venture capital as this law of nature mm-hmm. that everyone has to follow. So I would like to see more people form like these token enabled or coordinated organizations in explicit opposition to venture capital. Like take community ownership to like the fullest degree possible and not be seduced by by venture capital because you have this incredible tool of this 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 community token or community currency that can go really far right and real quick just could you give us like a quick primer on how are DAOs funded like how does token ownership translate into funding for the organization as a whole well if there is like one it could be investors basically doing some kind of swap, like swapping a USDC stablecoin for X amount of tokens. If a token is on an exchange like Uniswap, kind of like anyone could purchase it or or sell through this kind of like decentralized automated market maker. So mm-hmm. it's like a very fluid form of ownership. Like if you want to buy from benefits tokens, you can just do that off of Uniswap, basically. Right. And you know, that in the, what, I mean, the result of that is if more people want to buy in, then the people that have been growing value for the organization, like their tokens end up being worth more as well. Right. And that if something like that can be imbued with value, then it becomes like a really, really useful tool to drive 
contributions without kind of the need of traditional capital. This is, I think this is like a pretty leftist idea or it could be like looked at as that, like in terms of solidarity networks of local currencies, people creating their own community currencies. So many of the examples that we've seen are kind of just like internalized this lib application of these ideas. But I do think like through the lens of solidarity economics, community currencies, like these aren't like inherently libertarian or capitalist ideas. Makes sense. And so I'm just wrapping my head around it too. So a DAO will like launch and essentially have X amount of tokens that the DAO owns and they would put a certain amount up for sale that people can buy. And that's essentially how it fundraises originally. And then they retain a number of tokens as well that now holds value and they can use those. That's the treasury, right? That they now use to fund all the different programs. Yeah, it could be done that way. Like, Or often just individuals that get tokens through contributing to a network can actually be the ones providing liquidity for this. I mean, it gets pretty heady, but at the end of the day, it's just like people coming together to kind of like create this market for this community currency that was invented, but at the same time can be like a proxy for real ownership. Yeah, it's still hard to wrap my head around like... Because the tokens are both used as compensation, it's used as ownership and governance, and it's used as like a fundraising mechanism and an investment mechanism for people that can buy and sell on it. So it's like used in all these different ways. And it's, yeah, it's confusing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it is confusing because it's so new uh, and, yeah. and everyone's figuring it out. Like, I don't think that anyone's found the perfect model yet. Groups like Friends Benefits, as interesting as I find them, I, I think I have like a pretty imperfect model of the requirements to buy in. Mm-hmm. It seems problematic too that a contributor might have to sell their ownership in order to pay rent exactly. potentially. So yeah. it's yeah, there are definitely these challenges. And but what I see is a lot of good faith, hopeful, constructive people that are kind of building out in the open. And so if anything, I'm, I wouldn't advocate for like a particular model or say one group is doing it perfectly or saying that just DAOs are incredible in all instances. It's just that these there's a ton of design space to explore here and kind of like imbue with the values that we want. Just, it feels very wide open. And so like I'm, I'm in favor of just open exploration. Do you have a personal take on what the ideal model is for a DAO or like what's your stance today on if, well, you are starting another DAO now, like what is the model that makes the most sense? Well, I think being as egalitarian as possible, onboarding membership through contributions. I think that having membership not be based on necessarily on a kind of like ERC-20 fungible token to something that may look more just like a membership card, like an NFT that serves as membership. And yeah, I think like a way that has clear ways that people can earn or participate their way within an organization and doesn't gatekeep or lock people out because of need or price. So yeah, I think, you know, again, I'm digging into literature and trying to think of the best ways to capture all these ambitions. But I think in general, it's, yeah, just this intention to just create a fair egalitarian organization with membership that is robust, ambitious, 
and carries real weight. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's smart for an existing established community to convert itself into a DAO or to tokenize itself? Or is it better, like, is starting from scratch pretty important that that model is built into the system from day one? I think we'll see interesting examples of this being tried. As an example, this was something that I'd been looking at going through C Club. I do believe that it's kind of hard to turn those gears backwards. And it might be easier to start like just with a, a Web3 native model yeah. from the beginning. But I'm sure we'll see successful examples of it. It just it does feel more challenging than kind of like starting from the beginning as a Web3 based organization. I think in large part it might not be as much of a, a structural challenge as it is a challenge of kind of like education within a community, like a level of familiarity with Web3 tools and acceptance of this as like a, a model. I think for good reason, people see a lot of things that make them nervous about anything crypto related and mm-hmm. aren't fully bought in to this concept. So totally see that and like forgive that. But I just think, yeah, it's at this point in time, it, it's probably much easier to just like start with a, a Web3 native model. Yeah, that makes sense. And last question before I rapid fire question round mm-hmm. for people who build community who are community managers, what does community management look like in a DAO? What is like the scope of work of a community professional within the context of a DAO? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with education, like diminishing any kind of informational asymmetry that would exist between the team and other groups or other stakeholders. I think it's uh, creating paths to become as involved as someone would like to be, but also allowing people to have the freedom to just be like a passive member. So some people may be really interested in going to meetings and thinking about governance and becoming a a board representative. Other people are just like, I just want to use this website, but I, I really like that it's a cooperative. Yeah. So I think creating both of those paths is important. And I think there's like an extra burden of clarity among community members and in, or community managers within a collectively owned organization if it's like a, a co-op or a DAO. And so our community managers generally, are they the ones responsible for managing governance and voting and snapshots and those aspects of DAOs as well? Or are they more focused on the human engagement and managing online spaces like Discord? It feels like the scope might be a lot larger for community professionals and DAOs than it is in like a Web2 company. Right. Yeah, I think that the role of a community manager is often limited to people thinking about social media manager. But <laughs> I think it has like a much greater role within an organization that's collectively owned by people. I mean, to a large degree, I think that leaders of these organizations are community managers as well. That it's like a, I feel like it's a unique form or like style of of leadership that makes someone successful. Like someone that's internalized kind of like traditional startup, like hierarchical management styles is probably not going to run a collectively owned organization very well. So I think like a lot of it's like this personal, this challenge is very personal and tough for people of like letting go the reins and being comfortable with things going in a different direction or vision than maybe one person had planned. So I think like this idea of community management goes all the way 
to the top. And it is a very different style of leadership for sure. Yeah, it kind of seems like community is everything in a DAO. And there's like just different kinds of community roles within that. I have to ask one more question now because you brought Mm -hmm. it up like this idea of being comfortable with the direction changing and the community is making decisions. The community is defining what the business will do and how we'll do it. We talked, we had this debate in Seed Club. I don't remember if you shared your opinion or not, but I'm curious what your take is on should a DAO or co-op, I guess. Do you feel like it's better for it to come in with a clear idea of this is a product we're building and this is a problem we're solving versus what we're seeing in a lot of DAOs is more of an open approach of it's more of like we're going to bring this group of people together who have shared values and interests and just let them decide what to do and what to build? Yeah, I think this is something that does not come naturally for anyone that's like has a history in traditional startups. But it's what I find the most interesting is how community can be its own product in itself. So you can start with kind of like values or like a shared vision or like a flag that people are attracted to, kind of like collective culture. And then kind of like flipping this product development lifecycle upside down, or instead of one person or like a small team building a product and you build a community around that product, you could start the other direction, start with a community. And the community can diligence and come up with ideas and and help build with, by, and for the community like products that serve its own needs and could serve other people's needs too. So this is this is one thing that I think is really cool about Friends with Benefits is they have several products that they've made or are working on that could be successful standalone startups in themselves. And like one is a product called Gatekeeper, which mm-hmm. is a way of a token gating uh, ticketed access to physical events. That's something I think could be like a really big standalone company. But that idea was really only sourced by its own community to serve its own needs. Mm-hmm. And just starting with a group of people, a story and a concept, and then growing products from there is like a very unintuitive way to do things. But I, I feel like it actually can yield really interesting results and successful products. I wonder if I'm just one of those startup archetypes who's just been in this world too long because like, I'm of two minds. On one hand, I love the idea of community ownership, of empowerment, of letting community decide what to do, of true ownership, not just a sense of ownership. On the other side, I've also been in startups and tech for 15 years, built multiple companies. I've seen how hard it is to build a startup that works and to stay focused. And like FWB is an interesting example where gatekeepers won path. I don't think they charge for Gatekeeper today, but in any case, they could turn that into a business. And that's a pretty good product. But it's also mm-hmm. launching like a coffee subscription right now. Mm-hmm. And there's a team launching a coffee subscription. And like each of these programs cost money, like cost pull from the treasury to essentially build out these things. And like I can't help but feel skeptical or worried that like spreading the organization across completely disparate products and tools and things, just like whatever the community wants to do, is going to be really hard to maintain that focus that it really takes to build a sustainable and successful company. And as Mm -hmm. you draw from the treasury over and over again to launch these projects, like it's fine now because FWB is backed by Andreessen, like there's a ton of money in the bank. But like as that money slowly disappears over time, at some point, there becomes a like, okay, we're running out of money. We have to build something that will be financially sustainable and successful. 
and then it starts to feel like a regular Web2 company again. Right, yeah. Uh, we'll buckle up and see how it goes, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not so skeptical that I'm not uh, getting off the ride. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm very, very interested to see where it all goes. All right. Well, on that note, I think we're ready for our rapid fire question round. Awesome. Are you ready? I'm going to ask you questions. You're going to answer them as rapidly as you can. Okay, cool. Let's go. All right. First question. What's your favorite book to give as a gift to others? I mentioned this book before, but ours to hack and to own was kind of what got me thinking about ownership differently. It's free online. You Google ours to hack and to own, you can find a PDF. So that's what I would recommend. Nice. Hours to hack and to own. Mm-hmm. Cool. Definitely going to pick that up. Cool. I, this is a site, uh, this is a quote that is on your site. I'm curious what it means to you. Once upon a time, people were born into communities and had to find their individuality. Today, people are born individuals and have to find their communities. This is a quote from Cahill in youth mode. Right. Yeah. It's hard to, to digest this in a rapid fire, but <laughs> I think, yeah, it's at Meta Label, the project that I'm focusing on now, uh, we, we kind of like center this quote a lot. And I, I think it's just a way to think about how we used to be find communities that we like didn't necessarily choose, but we just landed in like church or family. But now the internet kind of allows us to find all the other weirdos that are just like us. And so we have this kind of a freedom to find people just like us. These are our communities and we like have to kind of find them rather than being born into them. Yeah. Yeah. I, when I saw that quote, I had like an oh shit moment. That was <laughs> another one. I was like, that kind of sums up a lot of what's been bubbling in my head over the last mm-hmm. 15 years. So mm-hmm. I really liked it. I'm going to be referencing it often. Next question. What's one community engagement technique or conversation starter that you like to use in your communities? One thing that I did with Ampled quite a bit was just give everyone my phone number and just say it's one way to do it <laughs> or call whenever. So any artist that was signing up, I would just make a point to hop on the phone on a weekend, just talk for an hour. I had heard many people just tell other people like, oh yeah, you can talk. Austin will talk to you on the <laughs> just phone. Text it's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Not something that scales very easily, but I think that like doing something like that just is meaningful. It feels better than a Calendly link for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Do you just use your real number or you use like a service or something oh, to manage yeah, yeah. it? Yeah. Bold. I like it. Yeah. It's in my, my email, my email signature. Just text me. Love it. I'm going to test it later. <laughs> <laughs> Who's an up and coming musician or artist that you're all about right now? I'm going to see a show tomorrow. I'm going to see a Rose Hotel. Play at a house venue called uh, Cat Farm. And Rose Hotel is on Ampled as an artist owner. So yeah, really, really enjoy Rose Hotel. And I'm based in New York, typically listen to punk music. So I really like Crime Watch and Show Me the Body as well. Those are both like local New York fans. Awesome. We'll check them out. Who in the world of community would you most like to take out for lunch? Bernie Sanders. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Ready to feel the burn. Yeah. Love it. What habit has had the most positive impact on your life? I adopted a dog, which like is a uh, like has a lot of uh, habits associated mm-hmm. with it, like going on walks and nothing better. I don't know if it's a habit or just like a really awesome thing, but yeah, and during during COVID, nothing nothing better than having a dog and kind of like have that shape your day. Yeah, I had a baby during COVID, so similar. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> probably uh, higher waves of highs and lows or positive right. and negative impact, but mostly uh-huh. positive. <laughs> right. Lots of new habits, that's for sure. <laughs> What's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? Part of me thinks, you know, like the early or the mid-aughts, like Brooklyn DIY scene, mm-hmm. where people were just forming illegal venues in random spaces. <laughs> like there's a, a venue called Bodega that was in the basement of a bodega. There was a, uh-huh. a venue called Above the Auto Parts Store, which was above an auto parts store. They're all very descriptive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Either that or when I was in college, I worked at a vintage clothing store called Beacon's Closet, which everyone everyone there was in a band and was had full access to whatever clothes they want. So everyone dressed like a maniac. And yeah. that was a fun time. I love it. Those are great ones. All right. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Easy. Nachos. For sure. Nachos. Yeah. Very healthy. <laughs> can can you sustain? Can you live on just nachos? Yeah. This is, depends yeah. what you dip it in. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> What's a community product that you wish existed? Some of the products that I that do exist I think are are really cool that are merging are mirror. I like mirror. I like some of the tools like OX splits, which is like a, a permissionless protocol to, to like split money or income from sales, you know, like a web three way drips by radical is really cool. What does that do? It's like web three native subscriptions. So like streaming okay. payments, those are seem like really cool Legos, but yeah, I, I also am just interested in seeing more, more organizations where like the community is the product and seeing how that develops. Yeah. Love that. And you mentioned Mirror as well. It's a popular tool in Web3. It does like a bunch of different things, right? It's not just like one product. Yeah, it's like a really well-rounded collaboration tool for publishing, crowdfunding, creating like a marketplace for NFTs. This is a bunch of stuff. Yeah, awesome. All tools that you should check out if you're interested in DAOs. And last question, if you were to find yourself on your deathbed today and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one piece of advice, what would that advice be? I like fully don't feel qualified <laughs> to answer this question. That's good advice. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that like if I could glean any like personal experiences that I've probably benefited from being better at unlearning kind of, like traditional ways of viewing status like outside of kind of like money or materialism and having like a very high a tolerance for for being misunderstood which is like i guess you kind of need if you're gonna start like something like uh ampled or like a cooperative platform mm. so yeah i think leaning to that is good i like i do feel like having the guts to do cool stuff just results in cool stuff happening just very i don't that's not a very elegant way so this is that me on my deathbed. <laughs> just like yeah, rambling, rambling on my deathbed. <laughs> yeah, he must he must be losing his shit. He's not making any sense anymore. <laughs> well, I really like having a high tolerance for being misunderstood. I really that's like a very unique way of saying like be yourself. It, like I never liked that advice, but I like the idea of having a high tolerance, like being okay with being misunderstood, because that kind of gives you permission to do things that are out of the norm and that feel true to you. Right. Yeah. So that was great advice. Next podcast, you're going to be ready to go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And lastly, where can people go to continue to learn from you and check out Meta Label and the different projects you're working on? You could follow me on Twitter. It's Austin Roby. 
underscore R-O-B-E-Y. And you can check out metalabel.xyz. Follow Metalabel on Twitter as well. Awesome. Awesome. This was really, I, I mean, I feel like I could just talk to you for several more hours if I had that time. I'm just, you open up so many ideas for me and also help me understand a lot of things in a really unique way. And even when I read your article, it just felt like a breath of fresh air to see someone thinking really thoughtfully and critically about Web3, not in a way that's overly judgmental, but also not like blindly optimistic. And I think there's so many things that Web3 is unnecessarily reinventing the wheel around, whether it's what we can learn from co-ops, what we can learn from open source, what we can learn from community management. And you've clearly and quickly become a voice of transferring some of those lessons and being a bridge into this new space. So just really grateful for the work you're doing, the wisdom you're sharing, the projects that you're working on, and really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing some of that with me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I do think that I'm a Web3 believer, not necessarily religious about it, but I think like I'm encouraged by things that I'm seeing and maybe for any like skeptics out there, just it's fine. But also like there are really cool communities doing cool stuff. So I would just end with that. Yeah, have a high tolerance for being misunderstood. Right. <laughs> uh, so thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.